0: What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today, we have a Q&A episode. And I'm actually going to get through all of these questions and try something a little different in this episode, uh, just from a recording perspective. Uh, my camera usually shuts off after like 30 minutes and has to be returned on. And so if that does happen, then I'm going to do that and I'll edit it the best I can so it's nice and smooth. So we have some questions here, a little bit shorter, a little bit longer, but I'm going to get through all of them and so stick with it. And so if you asked a question, I appreciate it. I picked, I think, the ones that I felt were the most helpful to the most people, I don't know, there's like 10 or 15 of those questions here, some a little bit longer, some a little bit shorter, so let's jump into it, first question is from Sage Sonig, and she asks, any downside to taking a week off for my deload? Uh, the answer is it depends. There are going to be upsides and downsides of different methods of deloads. I have an entire podcast on deloading. I think it's episode 100. It's an update to my current thoughts on deloading, so I'll put that in the the show notes, but you could just scroll back. It's episode 100. Um, And it will go through this in a lot, a lot more detail. Um, I actually am a fan of at least considering taking a week off for some people. I think the psychological benefits of taking a week off are underrated. I think more people could benefit from taking some time away from the gym in my experience of working with people and myself. Sometimes having that time back to just do other things, uh, get away from the gym and, and almost miss it to a point where you feel more motivated to train when you come back can be very helpful. You know, physiologically, are there downsides? Maybe you lose a little bit of neurological efficiency. You might feel weaker when you get back to training than if you had done a more traditional deload where you train more than zero. Um, You might lose some fluid, some glycogen, some fluid in the cell, and you might actually look a little flatter sometimes. Uh, I don't think a week is long enough to make any of that meaningful. Just has to be said that those things might happen. Definitely no muscle loss, like actual loss of muscle cell size, like actual loss of muscle tissue that is not going to happen in a week, especially if you're at maintenance. Um, So I wouldn't actually be worried about losing actual muscle, Um, maybe over the long term, slightly less optimal for long term gains that I think you would have to say that that is the truth that doing nothing is, you know, if you did nothing all the time. Versus doing, you know, more of a traditional deload where you would have some form of small stimulative training, but you know, you lower volume or you lower intensity or you change the stimulus. Those are probably on the net balance. If you had to pick one or the other forever, probably better for gains over time. But you don't have to pick one forever. You can use, you know, each of these tools, you know, in an amount that helps you. And so, I love doing this periodically. I find if a client is in a high state of fatigue, maybe very low motivation to train, just kind of feeling blah about training. Or even if they're still excited to train, but they're feeling very like physically fatigued, whether that's systemically or joint joint pain or chronic soreness, that some time away from the gym altogether can be really nice. Uh, and again, so we got to take this uh, individually, but I think periodically doing this is totally fine. I even think she added some context of doing this, like, oh, I you know I'm doing this back on back to back deloads. I don't think there's anything uniquely negative about doing it back to back deloads. I would say that you know, on the spectrum of doing it every single time you deload, just taking a week off versus doing this a bit more sparingly when you think psychologically or physically you need it. Maybe I lean a little bit more on that side, but I have clients who have made amazing progress every time the deload rolls around, they take a full week away from the gym. So is it going to inhibit you from making gains? No. Might it be psychologically what you need sometimes? Yes. Um, and so again, it's a, it's a, I hate this term, but like it's a tool in the toolbox, meaning like it's something that you can use if you feel that that's something that's right for you in that moment. You know, if you work with a coach, I'll be looking at some of those like low motivation to train, you know, how fatigued, when's the last time you did this? Are you going on vacation? Are there external factors that might make taking a week off easier? So I'll look at all that. And I think it's something that should absolutely be considered if you want a longer discussion about all the ways you can deload and pros and cons of different methods, go check out episode 100. Definitely goes into it in more depth. Cool. Next question is from Amber Jacobs. And it's a long, some of these are uh, longer entries. So I'm going to read them verbatim here um, or not verbatim, depending on if I want to mend something. But she says, I'm five foot, I'm five foot uh, petite frame. Uh, I was trying to get into a calorie deficit, but I didn't really begin to lose weight Uh, successfully until I dropped below 1200 calories. And I didn't do that until the last two weeks of a 12 week cut uh, that I had, or or, of a 12 week period of time that I had given myself to cut. Uh, I was making little to slash slow progress at 1300. I only weigh 106 pounds. So she's five foot, 106 pounds. My question is, can you dress smaller petite women like myself in terms of calorie deficit? Generally, there's this sentiment of like, don't drop below 1200. That's a red flag. But I think that that's not geared towards someone like myself. I also work a desk job. I work out four to five times a week for an hour, but primarily sit the rest of the day. So based on everything I'm learning and observing about myself, I think it would be okay and safe for me to drop calories lower for a period of time thoughts. And yeah, I'm trying to get more movement in evening walks, etc. So thank you, Amber. Great question. Um, this This like, don't eat less than 1200 crowd, like you should never eat less than 1200 crowd. I think they're trying to do their, they're trying to do a nice thing, right? They're trying to encourage people not to do things that are overly extreme, that they might not necessarily have. uh, they're, They're trying to get people to not, Adopt a, f- a format of dieting that will likely lead to them not being successful in the long term. And I think for most people out there, if I had to give a very generalized blanket statement of, you know, should people be dieting uh, super aggressively or should pe- people be dieting more moderately, I-, I would have to say more moderately, but that, you know, that doesn't mean there aren't people who are going to do great dieting more aggressively. Now, the-, the added context that you give is that you're five foot, 106 pounds. And so going below 1200, isn't aggressive for you, relatively speaking, Um, you know, it's hard to give very specific answers because if we were talking, you know, if you were a one-on-one client, I'd know a bit more about you, how uh, meticulously you're tracking, your step count, stuff like that. But if you weren't seeing fat loss at 1,300, I think... Without a ton of added context, I think generally speaking, I would be okay with you going lower at this, you know, because you are a mega tiny person and not insanely active. You know, if you were like, hey, I'm five seven, 190 pounds and I'm eating 1300, I'm not seeing progress. I would raise a more skeptical eyebrow of like, okay, maybe it's more of a human error thing here than, you know, physiologically, this is too many calories. Like it's very possible that 1300, you might not see fat loss at that at that many calories, it is possible. Um, and so I think you said, based on everything I'm learning and observing about myself, it could be okay and safe for me to drop calories for a period of time. I think that as well. I think that that would be a fine thing to consider doing. Um, I would trust the bio, your biofeedback and the data. I would wanna know about how you're feeling. If you're like, hey, I'm not mega uncomfortable, I'm not insanely hungry, I'm not insanely fatigued, and I'm not losing weight, well then I would say you're not in a deficit and you can go into a deficit if you so choose. You know, if you were like, I'm feeling like shit, I'm mega hungry, my sleep sucks, I'm super irritable, and I'm not losing weight, uh, that would be, but we would have to have a slightly different discussion. But if you're like, hey, I feel good enough in this circumstance to lower calories in the pursuit of fat loss, but I'm feeling like the world is attacking me for going below a certain number, even though with the added context, I'm a super small person, you know, relatively sedentary, or at least not mega active. I think that that's okay, totally. I don't think that there's, some red flag, so I think you were on the right track there. I had two thoughts while I was reading that, and I may overstep here, but it's my podcast, and I'm, I'm, you know, going to say it. Um, you know, at five foot one oh six, you are not overweight, and that doesn't mean that people who are not overweight, and we can define what overweight even means. Um, I'm going to use it in a very general term, not not like in a BMI term, but. Weight loss for you is not about health at this point. My point is that you getting leaner is not you getting healthier at this point. So these are non-health related pursuits that we're talking about. So they're mostly aesthetic pursuits um, that you are discussing that you're pursuing here. And I just want to just be very clear that there's a difference between the conversation that we just had about you can do this versus, you know, I would push you to do this. And I would just, if I'm you... Just consider, like everybody should, is the juice worth the squeeze? Is getting even leaner at this point something that that is worth paying the amount of discomfort you'd have to pay? Only you can tell, but I would hate for you to, I would hate for anybody to get to a point where they are sacrificing what might be their best life. And, and most people's best life is probably not losing, quote, the last few pounds and being shredded and having six pack. Most people's life best life is gonna be a couple pounds above that, with a couple hundred extra calories, uh, and so just just keep that in context. I guess that's more of a general statement for everybody, but in your context, I was like, hmm, this person's probably already pretty lean, and I would hate for you to fuck up your relationship with food and go into a place where you're, you know, very uncomfortable um, for an amount of fat loss that might not bring you, you know, a, a life that is better. Let's say. And the second thing I wanted to say is just a general statement of like, this is why it's harder for smaller people to lose weight. And it's, everything's relative, right? Like you going to, like the whole conversation we just had is that this 1200 number is a different thing to you than it is to me. To you, it, it's a normal amount of calories potentially given certain contexts. Um, for me, it's obviously mega effing low. Um, and so it's relative, you know, me in a calorie deficit and you in a calorie deficit, we could be both in a 30% calorie deficit. And for both of us, we might be relatively the same amount of uncomfortable, um, you know, same amount of fatigue, same amount of hunger, but in an absolute sense, you have an, an absolute number less calories than I do. And I see this when I diet with Jenna and both of us are in a deficit. We might both be in a relatively similar size deficit, but I'm on... 2,800, 2,500 calories, and she's on 1,700, 1,600 calories. Now, we might both be in a relatively similar size deficit relative to our maintenance calories, but it's easier for me because if we want to go out and have a burger, I can fit that in. Like, the world isn't made for you on 1200 calories, like going out into the world and trying to eat uh, on 1200 calories, it's impossible. The average restaurant meal is like 1500 calories. My point is it's just gonna be more difficult for you to, to navigate those circumstances where you're not cooking because restaurants and takeout and all of that stuff is just so high in calories that in an absolute sense it makes it more difficult for smaller people. Relatively, you're as uncomfortable as I am in that deficit, but in an absolute sense if I I'm going out and I need to fit in a burger or something like that. Like I, ha- I have the absolute number to do that, um, and in some ways that makes it quite a bit easier. Uh, so just something I wanted to add there. Next question's from Caro Hod. I don't know, he or she asks, after years of restriction, is a year of reversing and maintenance enough of a base for an effective cut? Um, physiologically speaking, is a year at maintenance enough that physiologically you should be in a pretty good place to to sustain a cut? Uh, I, I think so, yeah. Um, you know, what, what does it take to sustain a cut? I think being physiologically in a good place is is a really good one. As, you know, uh, some amount of like a prerequisite to deficiting is probably spending a good amount of time in abundance, whether that's a surplus or just eating enough where you're not in a deficit. So I think you're doing a good job here. I don't know if you'll be able to have an effective cut because it's more than just you. My point is, I physiologically, I think you've checked that box. That's the question you're asking: is have I checked this physiological box of I've done the job where I've probably set my body up physiologically to handle a period of lower calories? I'd say probably yes. Um, there's also the environmental factor. I mean. I don't know what your life is like. Maybe physiologically, you can, you know, from a, I've been eating enough perspective, you're in a good place, but maybe your sleep sucks and you're going through a high stress state um, and, you know, you're going through a breakup, you're moving or whatever it is. And so there are other factors that will go into this, like, do I suspect this person would be successful in a cut or can your body handle being in a cut? I don't know. But this box, I think you have for sure checked. And if you think, okay, I've been eating a lot for a year, I've gone away from fat loss for a year. Uh, I feel, you know, It's not just oh I've been in out of a cut for a year I've been at maintenance. It's how do you feel like you should be feeling invincible like you should be feeling you know in a state of abundance where you're not yeah obviously people are hungry all the time like like during all states of caloric intake in a surplus I still get hungry like but you should be feeling like hey I could live this way for the rest of my life my sleep is good my trade offs that I need to make to enjoy my life are good I'm not. Constantly thinking about food. I'm not wrestling with my relationship with food. What are those things look like? Now I expect those to be in a decent place if you've been at maintenance for a year. But if they're not in a good place, then you know, just saying I've been at maintenance for a year doesn't—it's ref- not being reflected in how you actually feel. So I would assess those things as well. Next question is from I am Mirithadas. Maybe that's it. Maybe I butchered it. Um, how to know what phase I should be in right now after some yo-yo dieting, I'm currently binging. I don't have a long answer to this. This is a very simple answer. I don't, the phase you should be in is not trying to lose weight. Uh, the phase you should be in is trying to feed your body and get to the point where I just named all those things where you're like, my relationship with food is in a good place. My biofeedback is good. I'm sleeping well. My energy levels are good. I'm not always constantly thinking about food. My training is going well. That's the phase you should be in right now. So whether that's maintenance or surplus, um, if I have a person who's yo-yo dieting, and and then you know part of yo-yo dieting is let's say binging, where you have periods of you know I'm dieting and periods of I'm eating a lot more than I'd like to, um, I would probably look for some amount of uh, sustainability is a weird word, but some sort of like I'm thinking of yo-yo dieting as something that's very volatile, a lot of ups and downs. I would be looking for some sort of like baseline. Get yourself to a baseline where you're like, hey, I'm consistently eating enough. I'm consistently feeling good before going into a period of like giving yourself less than you need. So the answer is not cutting. That's the phase you should be in. Emma Hunter, I have limited weight. I have dumbbells at home. I prefer doing lengthened work before my shortened position work, i.e. doing squats before glute bridges. Squats being a lengthened position, bridges being a short position. Because if I do the short work first, I feel like I could grind out loads for ages. My weights are still heavy enough so so that things like squats and RDLs are hard, uh, and I can get them close to fail. But I heard doing short position first is better for hypertrophy. So I have a couple thoughts uh, when I read this question. The first thought was that I actually don't think your problem that you're having in your brain is actually a short position length of position work. I think it's literally that the glute bridge, or hip thrust, or whichever one of those you're doing, Uh, is an exercise where you can just do so much load that you don't have enough load to really do it without being pre-fatigued, without doing something else for the glutes. And so if you do RDLs and squats, then the amount of load that you need to challenge the glutes with glute bridges actually goes down because your glutes are so tired. So I don't actually think this is like a short position length the position work. I think it's you basically saying, you know, I can't do glute bridges first because I'm so fresh and I'm so strong in that state. I don't have the amount of load I would need to challenge the glutes in a glute bridge if I do them first. In that case, I love this. I wouldn't do the glute bridges first. I would do them later. You know, if I have clients who... Like if I'm programming something like a goblet squat, let's say, which you could argue is not optimal for hypertrophy because a lot of people are going to be limited by the amount of weight they can load, whether that's just like uh, like how wieldy it is, like being able to literally physically hold it, or their upper back musculature is the thing that fails because that weight is kind of pulling them uh, forward. You know, people would be like, hey, a goblet squat's suboptimal because you might not be bringing the quads close to failure. Quite often, most people, when they load weight in front of the body, are going to find that it's their ability to stay upright that is going to fail first. Now, I like programming some front-loaded work, a goblet squat, a dumbbell front squat, a barbell front squat, but I probably won't ever program it very early in the session. I will want the quads to be a little bit toasty so that you don't need as much load, which means you're probably less likely to have that sort of failure from you know, not being able to keep your spine in extension, extension, you know, your upper back wants to round uh, your core, whatever, fatigues first. And so I honestly don't think this order of exercises from short position to lengthen position, like when we talk about exercise order, we have to look at uh, several factors. You know, when I'm putting together a workout, I'm not like, whoop, yep, all the short position work first. And the rationale she's talking about is, you know, if you do your short position work first, that's technically where our muscle will fatigue first, And you can probably go from short to lengthened and in the entirety of that workout, get a bit more high quality tension because when the short position fatigues, we can still work in more of length lengthened position. Um, And so moving in that direction probably on the whole might give us a better result than doing the inverse. However, we have other factors we need to look at. Personally, I don't think short position to length position is as important as some of these other factors. To me, I think a bit more about the neurological complexity Like, what is the quality of the work going to be if I put it in a certain order? Let's take, like, you want to do leg extension and back squat. Back squat's about as neurologically complex as hypertrophy gets, and it's not as neurologically complex as, like, something for Olympic weightlifting, you know, a a clean, a jerk, whatever, anything like that, a snatch, Um, but it's pretty neurologically complex for the average person who's not, you know, 10 years into squatting. And so you might say, well, I got to do the short position work first, so I'm going to do the leg extension first, and then I'm going to do the back squat afterwards. I wouldn't do that. Something I wouldn't do it ever with anybody. But generally, I'm thinking about my group program. I wouldn't program that because I want—I don't want your quads or your nervous system to be fatigued when you go into a movement like a squat. That when I say neurologically complex, I mean it takes a bit of coordination, let's say. And I don't want you to be tired when you have to do something that requires high amounts of coordination. And so I might sooner organize the exercises in order of most neurologically complex, let's say most technique heavy, so like squat and then leg extension because that leg extension is just a machine where you're just doing knee flexion extension and you can just sit down, grip it and rip it. I don't care how, you know, fatigued you are, you know, you can sit down in this machine and do this exercise. But imagine putting back squats last in your program when you've done three other exercises. Your back squat will suffer more than if we flipped those around because it is, your nervous system will be a bit fatigued. Your quads will be a bit fatigued, and you'll probably just generally perform. It's like, it's like if we uh, wanted to, if we want, if we, you were like a sniper, which is like highly, let's say, neurologically complex. It's like very, it's not neurologically complex, but accuracy wise, like you probably wouldn't want to destroy this person's nervous system and then have them go shoot a sniper rifle, which they really need to focus on. And so, the thing that you really need to focus on, in this case, the back squat, because it's more coordination or technique heavy, isn't something I want you to show up and do fatigued. The second thing I would think about is, what do you care about more? Um, You know, what do you care about more, and what do you care about more should be placed earlier in the session, I think, in general, generally speaking. So if you have a day where you're working you know, pecs and delts, but you're like, man, I'm really trying to hammer my pecs most effectively, that's the thing I wanna grow the most, probably put the pec exercise first or before the delt exercise, potentially. Then I would also look at, you know, which order of the exercises is going to impact. So if I put something first, um, is it going to negatively impact subsequent work more than the inverse? And that's a bit of a nuanced one, but you might look at something and be like, you know, hip extension work into RDL, um, I find that a hip extension is a short position exercise, RDL is a lengthened position exercise. And I used to put the hip extension first, totally. But I was finding that people were were more often than not, without like really diving deep into the technique, were like, you know, probably getting a little bit lower back more lower back sensation than I wanted. But if they went into that hip extension feeling a bit fatigued from, a, you know, let's say an RDL or a split squat or something like that. I found that because those glutes and hams were maybe a bit fatigued, and the lower back probably feeling pretty good, um, they tended to get a little bit of a better stimulus than the inverse. And so there's a bit of a nuance here. I really don't think the lengthened, short lengthened position is the number one component you should look at, but it is totally a uh, one that is relevant. And if all else is equal, I'll go short to lengthened position. Let's say we get to an end of the workout and we're gonna do two tricep exercises and they're both very low neurological complexity. It's like both are cable work, let's say. I'll go short to lengthened. I think that that makes perfect sense because there's no other contraindication that tells me that I, you know, that this ordering would be bad. And so I think you're totally fine doing what you're doing and hopefully that was some added context here. Next question's from Tanya Caruana and she asks, can you explain what is meant by range of motion for the muscle versus range of motion for the exercise? I think... Well, I'll answer it in two ways. I'm not exactly sure what you mean by range of motion for the exercise, but, um, Brian Borstein and I talk about this topic of resistance profile and training position, which I, is what I think you're getting at. We talk about that ad nauseum in my last podcast to just go back one episode. Uh, so please go take that, take a look. We dive into this a ton. I think what you mean is like range of motion of the muscle versus resistance profile of the exercise. And so the Example I would give would be like a lateral raise. I'll give a couple examples. A lateral raise. So when you guys think about doing a lateral raise, most people think about stopping with their arms at 90 degrees, um, you know, perpendicular to gravity, let's say, right? So 90 degrees, arms straight out. That's where most people generally stop their lateral raise. Now, a lateral raise, when we look at the resistance profile of a lateral raise, which is just to say where is the lateral raise going? hardest? And where is it easier? What does that curve of difficulty look like? Well, a lateral raise has what we call an ascending resistance profile, meaning it gets harder as you go through that range of motion and stop at 90 degrees. So at the bottom of a lateral raise, there's no tension. Your arm is at your side. As you raise the arm up and it gets closer to perpendicular with gravity, there's more and more and more and more and more tension. There is the most tension when your arm is at 90 degrees perpendicular to gravity. And so you could say that this is hardest in the short position, or this has an ascending resistance profile. You, you know, you, I think saying it's hardest in the short position would be a little bit technically not true, um, because when your arm is out 90 degrees, that is not the short position or the shortest position for the medial delt. And so a lateral raises is, quote, hardest in the short position. It's harder... It's actually hardest in the mid-range because when your arm is perpendicular to gravity, that's actually more of like the mid-range, you know, mid-slash-short position for the medial delt. It's not the shortest position. If you wanted to train the medial delt in the shortest position, you would get the arm almost overhead in a Y-raise position. And so we have a difference between where is this exercise hard and what portion of this muscle's range of motion am I training? So if we look at a seated hamstring curl, a seated hamstring curl, where is that movement the hardest? Is it hardest at the top when your legs are straight out? Or is it hardest at the bottom when you're in you know, a lot of knee uh, flexion? It's hardest at the bottom for most machines. And so that you could say is hardest in the short position. And it is. But you could also say that you are training the, the hamstrings in a lengthened position because when you are in a seated position and you are in you know, something like 90 degrees of hip flexion, that lengthens the hamstrings. And so we have this relationship between what is the position of the muscle? What what position of the muscle am I training? And where is this exercise hardest? And again, if that's a, something that interests you or if that just confused the hell out of you, go listen to the podcast with me and Brian. We The first question I ask him, we break this down a ton. Uh, we talk about the difference between resistance profile and anatomical position and how they matter for hypertrophy or don't matter for hypertrophy. Um, and so the range of motion for the muscle is like, okay, you know, uh, you know, if I have my arm directly overhead in a Y-raised position, that's the shortest position for the medial delt. And so if I stop halfway, that's probably the mid-range, and then towards the bottom, that's the length of position. The range of motion for the exercise, I think you are talking about resistance profile, is gonna tell me where along that range of motion or where along the range of motion of this movement is it the hardest. And with those two, we can talk about, okay, what is the stimulus I'm getting from this movement? So. If that made sense, I'm very happy. If it it confused you a little bit, go and listen to that episode with Brian. We go into it in a bit more depth. Okay, next question is from Karina Moreno. She says, I like to add sets for more volume. Example, push-ups. I was only supposed to do two sets. I added a third after not performing like I had hoped on the previous set. I like to feel a pump at the end of the workout and this helps me feel that. This is fun for me. Is this junk volume? I find I can recover for next workout. Uh, So I had a, a couple thoughts reading this question. The first was... I don't know, I, I'm not there exactly with you while this session is going on, so I'm gonna take some leaps in trying to understand exactly what was happening, and so hopefully some of this sticks here. But generally speaking, you're actually not recovering for the next workout if your performance regresses, right? So if you're like, hey, I was supposed to get 10 on my second set, but I only got nine, or I, you know, I got 10 last week, and this week I only got eight or nine. If you regressed, that would not be, that would be you by definition, not recovering in time to warrant adding more sets to this. It might even warrant, you know, uh, either a deload or just some looking at the program. Obviously we have to look at this in context, but you know, someone's like, hey, I didn't You know, I'm recovering well from workout to workout, but my performance is regressing. It's like, those are, those can't both be true. Um, Actually, the best indication of recovery is your ability to progress. You know, a lot of people are like, well, I'm not sore when I go into my workouts. That's not the only thing that has to recover. Sometimes it's nervous system fatigue. You might not be locally sore in the muscle, but when it comes to performance systemically, when it, you know, the all the neurological things that go into you actually being able to lift the weight, those things can be fatigued from just generally globally doing a lot of hard work week to week. And so you might be like, yeah, I can recover for the next workout. Like I go into that workout, I'm not sore. But then, if you find that there's performance regression, that's usually like a, um, you know, um, you know your uh, uh, Renaissance periodization would say something like your system, you've reached your systemic MRV, meaning it's not like locally a muscle has been taken too far. You haven't overtrained a muscle; you've overtrained the system, and the system being, you know, your nervous system's ability to actually push hard and lift this weight more than you did last time. So that's something to consider. Um, basically a TLDR of that would be in the face of regression, performance regression, I would not add a set. Now there's a bit of nuance to that because if you're later in the mezzo and you're finding that you're not progressing or you know uh, you're progressing insanely slowly, let's say, which I guess in the insanely slowly, I might not add a set. But if you find that like performance is good, but you're not actually beating yourself the last week or two, I don't think adding a set is the end of the world. And so I might sit, you know, I might die on this fence of like, if you're regressing, don't add a set. If you're matching previous weeks late in the meso and you find, you know, like deload is in a couple of weeks and you find that you feel good, but you're just matching, you could add a set. That sometimes is one way to break through a plateau. Um, so there's certainly some nuance there, but I would not think to myself, hmm, I regressed from my performance last week. So let's add a set this week. That wouldn't be something I would do. Um, I think this idea of like, well, I'm recovering fine. Recovery and performance are intertwined. They are more or less synonymous. And if you're not able to perform at least as well as you did last time, you're not recovering in time. Um, what else? You asked, is this junk? Let's say. So let's move on from that. And let's say what let's just have a more general discussion about what is junk. It's junk if it pushes you to this point where you can't recover. So let's say you did fine this week um, and you wanted to add a set, and you added a set. And then the next week you find that when you go into doing your push-ups and you're doing these three sets, you find that you regress in performance. And that could be from the fact that you added that set last week. It was just too much for you to recover from. So it's junk if it pushes you beyond the point from which you can recover. It's junk if it's outside of the hypertrophy rep range. If it's less than five reps, if it's more than 30 reps, it's technically not true. You still get hypertrophy from outside that rep range. It's just less efficient hypertrophy. And so we might just say, you know, as a good rule of thumb, let's stay in that range. Um... It's junk if it's not close enough to failure which is not the circumstance here I know you're taking this set clo- you know all the way to failure trying as hard as you, as you can to beat last week um, but generally junk volume if it's not close enough to failure within let's say four four or five reps um, then basically it was work that you did that you get to no hypertrophy for which we're gonna call junk um it's junk if you can tell the quality of work has diminished substantially. And you lack that like neural drive. A lot of times, you know, you might find, and this kind of goes hand in hand with taking the muscle close to failure. You might find late in the session, if your workouts are getting really long, that those last exercise or two, you're thinking about those sets and you're like, did I really take the muscle close to failure? Or was the quality of the work just low. And I got to a point where my, my mind stopped and I was like, I just can't do this anymore. The quality of work went down. The neural drive is low. The effort is low. You might think, oh, this feels hard, but you stopped the set before the actual muscle got close to failure because something else got close to failure. Um, and so, you know, those are some things that you might want to look at in case it's junk. I, it's tricky. If you're if you're progressing, here's a very general rule. When someone is like, hey, Jordan, can I add this to your program? Or can I add this to my program? If you add that thing and you are able to progress week to week, again, not forever, but reasonably well for a number of weeks until it, you know it's a reasonable time to deload and you are recovering enough to progress or at least match previous week's efforts, then I think that that's fine. It's not junk. You can go ahead and do that. You know, uh, I'll have someone who's like, hey, can I add deadlifts to your program. And I usually will say something like, if you add deadlifts to the program and you're still uh, surviving this workout enough that you can progress on everything, great. It's just unlikely that will be the case. Uh, It's unlikely that you can add deadlifts to an already like well-structured hypertrophy program and find that you can still progress on everything. Now, if you could, if somebody could, if they're like, hey, I added heavy deadlifts and I'm progressing on everything and I'm working close to failure and I feel great, it's awesome. And I don't have anything to say to that. That's fantastic. Um, So when you think about, is this junk? Think to myself, in your context here, am I able to at least match what I did week to week? Or when I add this, do I find that next week, it's, I can't match what I did last week because I've just set myself up with work that I could not recover from. And now it's a bit more nuanced than that because you might just be adding, like you might not be recovering well enough from the totality of your training, it might not just be specifically locally the muscles worked in the push-up. It could just be systemically all of the work that you're doing, um, and it all, in some ways, especially systemically, goes into one bucket. Um, let me browse the question again. Is uh, this is fun for me? Is a junk volume? I find I can recover. If you are recovering well enough to. For performance to at least match, if not beat, then by all means do it. If you are finding that you locally feel recovered, but when it comes to performance, you're like, well, I'm not really progressing, and I feel like the quality of work isn't that great. But you know, in an attempt to, you know, um, mitigate the annoyance of not beating what I did last week, I'm going to add a set so that I can do more. Um, Eh, I don't know if that's uh, something I would subscribe to. It may be very late in a mezzo when I have a, when I have deload coming right up around the corner. And this idea of like um, super compensation, this idea of like temporarily overreaching. Maybe, maybe, maybe. If it's happening early in the mezzo, hell no, though. I would be more conservative. Next question is from Jude, a bunch of E's. Would love your opinion on waist trainers. I think they're shit and a scam. Uh, they are shit and a scam. That's it. Anything else I wanna say on that? Not really, that's it. Basically, just bullshit to steal your money. Cool, next question is from 789 Kelly. Can you discuss what happens to muscle when we don't train for weeks or months? Um, Yeah, sure. What happens to the muscle? Um, First, what will happen is within a couple of weeks, you will lose glycogen and fluid in the cell. And so you might find that, let's say, you know, we talked about that person taking a week off of their deload. Let's say you take two weeks off. You might find that when you look in the mirror after those two weeks, you look flat, you look smaller. You look maybe like you think you've, you know, you look like you've lost muscle. But losing muscle technically means like like having the muscle cell shrink, like losing that muscle tissue. We're not losing muscle tissue in one to two weeks. You might lose some fluid in the cell, which makes you look flatter, probably, you know, it uh, has something to do with a negative impact in performance, but you're not actually losing what is matters most, the actual muscle tissue. That fluid is more uh, more transient, comes and goes. And so if you lost that fluid, you probably gain a bunch of that fluid back in the first couple workouts when you get back to training. That glycogen storage, uh, the, the, just some of the other fluids that are in the muscle cell there, they're gonna come back very quickly. And so the, just like they go away the quickest, they come back the quickest. Um, again, when people are like, oh, I I feel like I lost muscle, I, I took 10 days off. It's You didn't lose muscle tissue. Um, everything, that I'm saying now, you'll lose muscle faster, actual tissue size, and all, glycogen and this fluid in a deficit than in maintenance, uh, and certainly in a surplus. Obviously, it will happen faster in a deficit, slower in maintenance, and slowest at surplus. Um, but generally, these timelines are are uh, are gonna be relative to that nutrition intake, but relative to each other, the, it's the same. Um, and so, you know, if you take 10 days off, you might look in the mirror, and you're like, oh, there goes all my muscle. You just lost some glycogen, right? Your your body's not storing as much carbohydrates in the muscle because you haven't told it that it needs to. When you train, you're telling your body, oh, well, we're using some of this glycogen stuff, and so maybe we should store more of it. And when you store more glycogen, you also store water, and it can drastically change the way you look. But actually, losing muscle tissue takes quite a bit of time, likely three to four weeks of inactivity or more, sometimes, depending on, you know, circumstances, specifically nutrition status. Um, you know, enough calories, enough protein, stuff like that. Um, muscle sh- muscle cells will inevitably shrink. That's what happens. Muscle cells will inevitably shrink over time. Again, three to four weeks plus of inactivity, depending on nutrition status. But in, at some point, muscle cells shrink. What's cool is that the actual, like, nucleus, the myonuclei, myo meaning just like a prefix talking about muscle, uh, nuclei, nucleus, stays. And it remains. And they are, pretty permanent, frankly, Um, almost permanent, I think we can say, and what that means is that when you, those myonuclei that you've created from years of lifting, they hang around. And so when you take time away from lifting and you come back to it, you can, this is one of those reasons that muscle memory is a real thing and you can actually gain muscle back much quicker, Uh, you know, muscle that you've once had. Um, And so muscle memory is totally a real thing. One of the big reasons is like myonuclei, like permanence um, to some degree. Cool. Cool. Okay. We got, we got, we got time for some more here. Um, Kesha Kagel, Do you think someone can become a successful online coach without having in-person experience first? Absolutely. Yes. hundred percent. Yes. Do I think that there are things that you might benefit from? Do I think everybody would be a better coach if they also worked in person? Yes. But this is a, that's like a relative to the individual question. Can, do I think people can be great coaches without working with people in person first or you know, together alongside, absolutely yes. I know a ton of amazing coaches that have never worked with somebody online and I know a ton of not amazing coaches who have done it, you know, the right way and have coached people in person. So I don't think it's gonna decide things either way. It's gonna be way more about who you are. Like, you know, uh, your work ethic, your compassion, your people skills, your continuing education, your willingness to work, uh, you know, just being there for the client. I mean, it's gonna come weighed more down to who you are as a person. I think there's some cool subtle nuances that come from having worked with a literal person in person. Um, but I don't think that that is the barrier to somebody being a successful coach at all. Um, if you can get your hands on some people, your family, to, you know train in person together a friend just to just to kind of watch that person move in the gym have those face-to-face discussions again it's everything's digital now I zoom with all my clients that's not the same I guess as being with them in the gym um, but I zoom, have zoom discussions with them so there is some element of like having to be able to have those interpersonal skills looking at somebody face to face and so I think you can be a great coach without working with people in person I think if you have the opportunities to do that there's no downside and so there's probably only upside. Emily, Emily, er, do burnout sets at the end of a workout do anything for hypertrophy? Um, And we're gonna reference some of that junk volume chat that we had in uh, Karina's question a couple questions ago, but super broad, here's what you need to know. We wanna work the target muscle close to failure in the five to 30 rep range. There's some arguments for maybe not going that high, but let's keep it very general for right now. If you're doing that, which means taking the target muscle close to failure in the five to 30 rep range, it's it's gonna be it's gonna cause hypertrophy. So you can all, right out of the gate say, well, my coach has me doing twenty walking lunges per side at the end of a workout as like a burnout. They've called it a burnout. Is this a, a waste of time? I don't think so. If you're gonna take the muscle close to failure at twenty reps, you know, let's say for an example, walking lunges, which maybe there's some argument that that's gonna be pretty cardiovascular demanding, but whatever. Um, it's gonna be hypertrophic. It's gonna build muscle, and you could layer on top of that if we, you know this isn't technically has to do with burnouts but we need to have some element of pushing progression over time and so you know if you're if you have like random burnouts so here's the deal if you're if your burnout is more than 30 reps has no element of progression to it meaning week to week you're not actually trying to do a little bit more you're not actually pushing those same exercises week to week then i'd probably say it's more of a sensation driven thing that your coach has put in where it's like this is going to make them feel good which to be honest, isn't the end of the world. If you really like doing this 60 rep booty band burnout or something, you know, if you really like it, that that's great. Just know that it's probably not as hypertrophic as some of the other stuff that you could be doing. Um, so do anything for hypertrophy. If you want something to do something for hypertrophy, take a target muscle close to failure in under 30 reps. And then from there, try to progress over time. If your burnout Burnout does that. I mean, we can call anything a burnout. There's no like objective definition to burnout. If your burnout does that, then it's going to be great for, it's going to be hypertrophic, not a waste of time. Angela Halverson asks, I'm going on my honeymoon in August. I'd, I'd like to cut beforehand. Do you think it's a good idea to transition to maintenance a little bit before that? I love this idea. I think it's a great idea. I think if you're going away on a trip, and whether that's the thing you're cutting for or not, if you know that towards the end of that cut, you're going on a trip and in that trip, you're probably gonna eat or drink more than normal. I might transition to maintenance a little bit before that, just like physiologically, the kind of person you are, the hunger levels that you have um, at the end of a cut are gonna be less optimal for that scenario than you going into that trip feeling good already. And so not super complex, I think a week or two before that, going and transitioning, doing that reverse process, getting yourself back to an amount of calories where you feel really good, that person's probably going to have a better chance at enjoying their of of enjoying their vacation instead of maybe taking things a little bit overboard. Angela had a second question for a cut. Would you advise tracking macros very closely, weighing in daily, doing photos twice a month, and measuring weekly? Listen, everybody is different. The amount of uh, self monitoring and quantification you're going to do is going to match with what you think is sustainable and you know uh, you know fits well with your relationship with food and to those actions themselves, how you feel about those actions. So find a level of how much tracking and self-monitoring you're gonna do that feels sustainable, doesn't fuck with your relationship with food and gives you the desired result, which is gonna be different for everybody. Personally, I'm not a big fan of the average person tracking macros. Um, I just feel like that is a a larger puzzle. It is a puzzle that has three components to it. When in reality, there are two components that matter a whole lot more, that, you know, calories and protein, that might be, And it's not that when you track macros, you don't track calories. You do. But I'm just talking about the thing that you're actually quantifying. Um, I would sooner rather, again, in a very generalized statement, have the average person track calories and protein than all the macros because I just feel like the added flexibility of not worrying so much about carb and fat ratios might make it more sustainable and probably does for the average person. So that's my two cents. Do I have clients who track all the macros? Yes. Less so for sure. Um, And usually for different reasons other than better results, because just in case you're not familiar with this, if calories and protein are equated, your carb to fat ratio outside of, actually, no, not outside of nothing will not make a difference in your body composition. Calories and protein are going to decide body composition changes. At the extreme level, I probably wouldn't want to see people go mega, mega, mega low carb, you know, go keto if their goal has something to do with performance in the gym, But, you know, even people who go keto can be successful on weight loss and have crazy body composition changes and still build muscle. So, um, you know, weighing in daily and taking weekly averages, I think is a good idea. Whether you weigh in weekly, you need to get, I think, enough weigh-ins that you can take averages. Um, If you weigh in weekly, then let's say you weighed in once a week. You weigh in once a week, we are judging your weight loss monthly. Because that's only four weigh-ins, and we need more data to really assess what's going on, especially for females on you know who have a menstrual cycle. We need to look at this more on a monthly scale. Um, so the more you weigh in, you know, the the on a smaller scale, we can probably judge what's happening. If you weigh in every day, we can probably look at the weekly averages and kind of assess what's going on. If you only weigh once a week, we're going to probably assess what's going on monthly. Um, and so, yeah, what about picks and measurements? Honestly, yo, picks and measurements weekly sounds fucking miserable. I know I have seen, I've been in this game long enough and seen a lot of clients and coaches who are like taking, having their clients take pictures weekly, bruh, that sounds miserable. You can have such a drastic change in how you look that has nothing to do with anything your client is actually like, um, trying to do fat loss or whatever on a weekly basis. And at the same time, most of the time, you'll see absolutely nothing. So in some ways you could be like, wow, I look fuller this week, I look better. And some weeks you see nothing at all. I would rather do both of those things monthly, frankly. Um, and for pics, maybe even less frequently. I think it's a very uh, very personal thing. I think you should be discussing with your client how frequently they wanna do those things. You know, for a lot of clients, taking photos and doing measurements is, uh, is uncomfortable. It's not fun. Uh, and that doesn't mean you don't push your clients to do things that are uncomfortable and fun if it's important and beneficial. But I just think you take that into account. I, I don't think I would ever have a client do any of those things weekly. Um, I think photos and measurements monthly is a good plan. But again, that's a default for me. And I think you should take the client at you know the individual. Next question, we got two left here, guys, is from Jay. It's literally, his. I think, that is that your own, is that your Instagram name? Just Jay? That'd be wild if you got that name um, deadlifts and squats won't thicken the waist. I think he's asking, um, will deadlifts or squats thicken the waist because the relevant muscle? Okay. So he's, he's asking me if what he's saying is true or false. So Jay says deadlifts slash squats won't thicken the waist because the relevant muscles aren't taken through a considerable range of motion under load outside of weird genetics and technique. Is that a true statement? Is that true or false? I think it's 100% true, Jay. I think this idea that deadlifts and squats are going to thicken your waist is untrue. I think that um, most of that's gonna come from excessive oblique training, I suppose. But even that excessive oblique training, those things usually don't hypertrophy so much that they're gonna take somebody who's got like a slender waist and turn them into like some boxy waist. Um, Most of the time, you can't affect this outside of genetics. You know, if you... Train hard or you train abs. Yes, maybe if you're, maybe aesthetically, I, this this idea of like don't train your obliques because you don't want to grow horizontally in your torso and look like a, most most people, it's never gonna happen. It's never gonna happen. You could train your obliques all day and you're never gonna wake up and be like, holy shit, my torso's a box now. Like this is not a thing. It's mostly genetic, what your torso uh, genetics look like. Um, and it certainly won't happen from, deadlifting and squatting. And for the, you know, you don't have to be deadlifting and remember that like, you don't have to be deadlifting and squatting for a long time to, to have those effects because like Jay said, those muscles, the muscles, that, you know, in the abdominals, some of those deeper muscles in the abdominals aren't being taken through basically any range of motion. Um, they're working isometrically. And so if they were even to hypertrophy, it would happen mega, 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 mega slowly. Cool, next question. Uh, RKK asks, this always happens to me when I give 100% effort in one exercise, my next exercise sucks. For example, if I go hard on barbell bench press, my next exercise, incline dumbbell press, performance decreases drastically, aka if I'm fresh, I can do 30 kg for six to eight, but if I'm doing it second, I can do only 22 kg or 25 kg for the same reps. What to do What to do to come out of this? Uh, okay, okay. So I would keep your performance comparisons in context. I wouldn't compare what you could do fresh to what you could do if you're doing the exercise third. Um, I would compare apples to apples. That's not apples to apples. That's you saying, you know, if I'm really fresh, I can do 30 kg dumbbell presses. Well, you're not really fresh. And what you're doing is in a, in a fatigued state. And that is the, just going to happen because you're going to do more than one exercise per, uh, per workout. And so I would... I would compare more longitudinally, meaning like I would compare what you did with your dumbbell presses third. Let's say that, let's say your dumbbell press comes second this week to what you did next week when it's come second and the week after that when it comes second. And that's why we do the same workout in the same order ideally so you can have these apples to apples comparisons. You know, the, it's almost like I, I wouldn't be so concerned with what you could do at your all-time PR if you were fresh and you put that exercise first, I wouldn't think of it that way because that's not the circumstance you're in. And it's it's not like if you do 25 kg when and, and you're doing it second and you could really do 30 if it was fresh, it's not like, hey, I'm not getting as much benefit because I really know I could do 30 kg. Hypertrophy is super forgiving. It's not so much about doing weights in comparison to what you could do if you were fresh. It's more about doing weights and reps or weight and reps uh, in the context that you're doing them in. So in a certain slot in the workout and getting your ass close to failure. Uh, and so, you know, you doing 30 kg for six to eight, if you did it first, or you doing 25 kg for six to eight, if you do it second after barbell bench press, it's not like the first one gave you that much more gains. There is an argument to do the thing you care about more first, right? If you care about the bench press more, do it first because you are right. That is the best way to see performance. Specific performance in a movement is to do it when you are fresh. But when it comes to hypertrophy, you're you're always going to do more than one exercise per workout, and so you have to accept that the later you get in the workout, especially if you're doing similar muscle group, um, that exercise performance will be worse than if you were fresh, and that is okay. That's normal. That's why you should be compare. You should be comparing you know, your A1 slot from this week to your A1 slot next week, and your B1 slot this week to your B1 slot next week, instead of your B1 slot to what that exercise would be if it was in the A slot. I'm not worried about that. I want to compare apples to apples. I want my progression to go up over time when I'm doing the same workout, and that is one of those reasons that order, that doing the exercises in the same order is important, but even if you go out of order, if you now, I have plenty of people in my group that are like, you know, sometimes the leg press is taken and I can't wait or the cables are taken and I can't wait. And I usually tell them it's okay to go out of order. Um, just remember that that will affect the tracking of things. That if you do something first that you normally do fourth, then you're probably gonna do it better. And so just to take that into context and to, as best of your abilities, uh, do the same workout in the same order. All right, guys, that is the end of the Q&A here. Thank you for listening and I will see you in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at jordanlipsfitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.